17, a man of brains, and at 26 he was given a commission as artillery captain. Later he became professor of tactics in the École de Guerre, with the title of commandant, where he remained for five years, and then returned to a regimental work. It was when Fultz reached the grade of brigadier general that he went back to the war college, this time as director, one of the most confidential positions in the war department. From this post he went to the command of the 13th Division, thence to the command of the 8th Corps at Borges, and thence to the command of the 20th Corps at Nancy. At the time that Fultz was appointed director of the École de Guerre, Clemenceau was premier, and upon the latter fell the task of choosing an officer for the important directorship. There was keen competition for the position, many influential generals desiring the appointment, and in consequence much wire polling went on. The story goes that Clemenceau, a man of action, became impatient of the intrigues for the post, and determined to make his own choice unhampered. According to the story, Clemenceau, after a conference one day upon routine business with Fulch, asked the latter to dine. The École de Guerre was not mentioned during the meal, the men chatting upon general topics, but as the coffee was being brought on, the Premier turned suddenly to the General and said, Bruscaly, by the way, I've a good bit of news for you. You're nominated director of the École de Guerre, director of the École de Guerre, but I'm not a candidate for the post. That is possible, but you're appointed all the same and I know you will do excellent work in the position. Fultz thanked the Premier, but he still had some doubts, and added, I fear you don't know all my family connections. I had a brother who was a Jesuit. Jesuit PD. The Premier is reported to have roared in reply. Oh, I beg your pardon, Mr. Director. You are the director of the École de Guerre. All the Jesuits in creation won't alter that it is a fait accompli. Among the confidential bits of work worthy of note that Fulch has done for the War Department is the report he made upon the larger guns of the French field artillery, which have done such execution in the present war. For many weeks Fulch went around the great Creusot gun works in the blouse of a workman, testing, watching, experimenting, analyzing. Fulch was one of the high officers in France who was not in the least surprised by the war and who had personally been holding himself in readiness for it for years. He felt and often said, that a great war was inevitable, so much used he to dwell upon the certainty of war that some persons regarded him as an alarmist when he kept declaring that French officers should take every step within their power to get themselves and the troops ready for active service at an instant's notice. He also held that France as a nation should prepare to the utmost of her power for the assured conflict. In a recent issue of the London Times there was a description of Fulch by a Times correspondent who had been at Fulch's headquarters in the north of France. The correspondent's remarks are prefaced by the statement that in a late dispatch General French mentions General Fulch as one of those whose help he has, once more gratefully to acknowledge. The correspondent writes in part, while Ernest Lavis has clone for civilian New France in his direction of the École Normale General Fulch has done in a large measure for the officers of New France by his teaching of strategy and tactics at the École de Guerre. He left his mark upon the whole teaching of general tactics. I had the honor of being received recently by General Fulch at his headquarters in the north of France a house built for very different purposes many years ago, when Flemish civil architecture was in its flower. The quiet atmosphere of Flemish ease and Burgomaster comfort has completely vanished. The building hums with activity, as does the whole town. A fleet of motor cars is ready for instant action. Officers and orderlies hurry constantly to and fro. There is an occasional British uniform, a naval airman's armored car, and above all the noise of this bustle, 
though lower in tone, the sound of guns in the distance from Ypres. The director of all this activity is General Fulch. There in the north he is putting his theories of war to the test with as much success as he did at the outbreak of hostilities in Lorraine and later in the center during the Battle of the Marne. Although born with the brain of a mathematician, General Fulch's ideas upon war are by no means purely scientific. He refuses, indeed, to regard war, and more especially modern war, as an exact science. The developments of science have, indeed, but increased the mental and moral effort required of each participant and it is only in the passions aroused in each man by the conflict of conception of life that the combatant finds the strength of will to withstand the horrors of modern warfare. General Fulch is a philosopher as well as a fighter. He is one of the rare philosophers who have proved the accuracy of their ideas in the fire of battle. A typical instance of this is given by, Miles, in a recent number of the correspondent. During the Battle of the Marne the Germans made repeated efforts to cut through the center where General Fulch commanded between Cezanne and Maoli. On three consecutive days General Fulch was forced to retire. Every morning he resumed the offensive, with the result that his obstinacy won the day. He was able to profit by a false step by the enemy to take him in the flank and defeat him. General Fulch's whole life and teaching were proved true in those days. He has resolved the art of war into three fundamental ideas preparation, the formation of a mass, and the multiplication of this mass in its use. In order to derive the full benefit of the mass created it is necessary to have freedom of action, and that is only obtained by intellectual discipline. General Fulch has written, Discipline for a leader does not mean the execution of orders received in so far as they seem suitable, just reasonable, or even possible. It means that you have entirely grasped the ideas of the leader who has given the order and that you take every possible means of satisfying him. Discipline does not mean silence, abstention only doing what appears to you possible without compromising yourself, it is not the practice of the art of avoiding responsibilities. On the contrary, it is action in the sense of orders received. Fifteen years ago at the École de Guerre General Fulch was fond of quoting Joseph de Maister's remark, A battle lost is a battle which one believes to have lost, for battles are not lost materially, and of adding, battles are therefore lost morally, and it is therefore morally that they are won. The aphorism can be extended by this one, a battle one is a battle in which one will not admit oneself vanquished. As, Miles, remarks, he did as he had said. Ernest Guinmay in the London Saturday Review has this to say in part about Fulch and his two widely known books, during his two terms of service at the École de Guerre he produced two considerable works, Principes de la Guerre and De la Conduite de la Guerre, which give a high idea of their author's character and talent. There is nothing in them that ought to scare away the average reader. Their style has the geometrical lucidity which is the polytechnician's birthright. But in spite of the deliberate impersonality generally attached to that style of writing, there emanates from it a curious quality which gradually shows us the author as a living person. We have the impression of a vast mental capacity turned to the lifelong study of a fascinating subject and acquiring in it the dignity of attitude and the naturalness which mastery inevitably produces. War has been the constant meditation of this powerful brain. In La Conduite de la Guerre, this meditation is the minute historical examination of the battles of the First Empire and 1870. Nothing can replace the experience of war, writes the author, except the history of war. And it is clear that he understands the word, history, as all those who go to the past for a lesson in greatness understand it. L's Principes de la Guerre is more immediately technical. Yet it strikes one as being less a speculation than a visualizing of what modern war was sure to be. 
if the reader did not feel that he lacks the background which only the contemplation a million times repeated of concrete details can create, he would be tempted to marvel at the extraordinary simplicity of these views, but a good judge who was very near the general until a wound removed him for a while from the to him fascinating scene tells me that this simplicity and directness which marked the action of Foch at the Battle of the Marne as they formerly marked his teaching are the perfection to which only if you can aspire. The Uenarianian beard dead by L.A. Fanning, for those who die in war, and have none to pray for them, let me, we lay a wreath of laurel on this ward, where rest our loved ones in a deep repose unvexed by dreams of any earthly care, and, checking not our tears, we breathe a prayer, grateful for even the comfort which is ours that we may kneel and sob our sorrow there, and place the deathless leaf, the rarest flowers, though winter's cruel fingers brown the sob. It's dearer far than all the world beside. Forms live again we gaze in love and pride on youthful faces priest close to our own. I smile to ours, we hear each tender tone. Grief smart is softened less the sense of loss. This grave we have, at least, we're not alone. And they must know of our unchanging love our tender thought our memory our prayers. And in our constancy, God, each one shares to whom death comes on distant battlefields. When life's last breath not even the solace yields, there's one who'll mourn for me whose tears will flow. Not even a grave is theirs, and named, and wept. God rest their souls the dead we do not know. Canada and Britain's War Union by Edward W. Thompson. FRSLFRSC. From the New York Times. April, 1915. Canada's political relation to Great Britain, and, indeed, to all other countries has been essentially altered by Canada's quite voluntary engagement in the war. Were feudal terms not largely inapplicable, one might aver that the vassal has become the suzerain's ally. Political equality connoted, but, indeed, Canadians were never vassals. They have ever been Britons, whatever their individual origins, retaining the liberties of their political birthright, while in a certain tutelage to their own monarch's immediate ministries, they have continually, slowly, consciously, expanded their freedom from such tutelage, substituting for itself government or rule by their own representatives, without forsaking but rather enhancing their allegiance to the common crown. This has long been the symbol of their self-government, even as it is to old country kinsmen the symbol of rule by themselves. The alteration manifested by Canada's active, voluntary engagement in the European war is the change from Canadians holding, as they formerly did, that Great Britain was bound to defend Canada. While Canadians were not bound to defend Great Britain outside Canada, the dependency has not been now dragged in, it acted as an independency, it recognized its participation with Great Britain in a common danger, it proceeded quite voluntarily, quite independently, to recruit, organize, dispatch, and maintain large forces for the common cause. Canada's course has become that of a partner in respect of acceptance of risks and of contribution to expenses. This partner has no formally specified share in gains, or in authority, or in future policy of the concern. Canada has no obvious, distinct, admitted way or voice as to the conduct of war or making of peace. She appears, with the other self-governing dominions of the crown, as an ally having no vote in settlements, none of the prerogatives of an ally. Hence some observers in Great Britain, in Canada, in other realms of the crown contend that the old, expressed relations between Great Britain, Canada, and the other dominions must inevitably be extensively changed formally as well as actually in consequence of the war. Some say imperial federation cannot but ensue, 
Others argue that formal independence must arrive if such federation come not speedily. Others contend for an empire league of sister states. Nobody ventures to mention what was often talked publicly by Canadians from 30 to 50 years ago, and later by Goldwyn Smith, viz. Canada's entrance to the United States as a new tier of sovereign states. The idea of severance from Great Britain has vanished. Discussion of the other alternatives is not inactive, but it is forced. It engages the quidnuncs. They are talkers who must say something for the delight of hearing themselves, or they are writers who live under the exigency of needing to get something different daily into print. They are mostly either jingos or centralizationists, as contra to nationalists or decentralizationists, long-standing opponents. Each set perceives their notions liable to be profoundly affected by Canada's fighting in Europe. Each affects belief that their own political designs cannot but be thereby served. Each is afflicted with qualms of doubt. They alike appreciate the factors that make for their opponent's cause. Both know the strength of popular attachment to Great Britain. Both know the traditional and inbred loathing of the industrious masses for the horrible bloodshed and insensate waste of treasure in war. Both sets balance inwardly the chances that sentiments seemingly irreconcilable and about equally respectable may, after the war, urge Canadians either to draw politically closer to their world-scattered kin, or to cut ligaments that might pull them again and again, time without end, into the immemorial European shambles. But is the Canadian public excitedly interested in the discussion? Not at all. Spokesmen and penmen of the two contentious factions are victimized by their own perfervid imaginations. The electorate, the masses, are not so swayed. The Canadian people, essentially British no matter what their origins, are mainly, like all English-speaking democracies, of straight, primitive, complicated emotions, and of essentially conservative mind, they plug along. The hour and the day hold their attention. It is given to the necessary private works of the moment, as to the necessary public conduct of the time. They did not, as a public, spin themselves any reasons or excuses for their hearty approval of Canada's engagement in the war. Her or their contributions of men and money to its fields of slaughter and waste appeared and appeared to them natural, proper, inevitable. They applauded seriously the country's being put in for it by agreement of the two sets of party politicians, and without any direct consultation of the electorate in this, the most important departure Canada ever made, because prompt action seemed the only way, and time was lacking for debate about what seemed the next thing that had to be done. In fact, the Canadian people, regarded collectively, felt and acted in this case with as much ingenuousness as did those Tyrol's mountaineers, bred. According to Heine, who know nothing of politics save that they had an emperor who wore a white coat and red breeches, when the patriots climbed up to them, and told them with oratory that they now had a prince who wore a blue coat and white breeches, they grasped their rifles, and kissed wife and children, and went down the mountain and offered their lives in defense of the white coat and the dear old red breeches, but did they forsake their relish of and devotion to their customary, legendary Tyrol's liberties? No more will the Canadian masses, by reason of their hearty participation in the war, incline to a yield jot or tittle of their usual, long struggled for, gradually acquired, valuable and valued British self-governing rights. Can the jingos or centralizationists scare them backward? Or the decentralizationists or separatists hurry them forward? Won't they just continue to plug along as their forefathers did in the old country and in the new? Gaining a bit more freedom to do well or ill at their own collective choice that island if the war result, as usual, in British security, 
According to confident British expectation, such as the Canadian political situation, it has been essentially similar any time within living memory. The people approve in politics what they feel, instinctively, to be the profitable or the decent and reasonable necessary next thing to do, which signifies that those controversialists are probably wrong who conceive that a result of the war, if it be a win for the Allies, will cause any great formal change in Canada's political relation to Great Britain. The truly valuable change in such relations is already secured, it cannot but become more notably established by future discussion, it is and will be a change by reason of greatly increased influence on Great Britain by Canada and the other dominions, and it appears highly probable that such inevitable change in influence or weight of the new countries is sufficient for all sentiments concerned, and for all full purposes on behalf of which formal changes are advocated by doctrinaires and idealists. The British peoples have acquired by long practice in very various politics a way of making existing arrangements, too, with some slight patching. They are instinctively seized of the truth of Edmund Burke's maxim. Innovation is not improvement. They have muddled along into precisely the institutions that suit any exigency. Their sanest political philosophers recognizing that the exigency must always be most amenable to the most flexible system. It is because the existing arrangements between London and the several Dominion capitals don't suit logicians that they do suit experienced statesmen pretty well. Because these institutions can be patched as occasion may require, they are retained for patching on occasion. Because the loose, go-as-you-please organization of the so-called empire has revealed almost incredible unity of sentiment and purpose. Practiced statesmen regard it as a prodigious success. They are mighty shy of affiliating with any of the well-meaning doctrinaires who have been explaining any time within the last century that the system is essentially incoherent and absurd and urgently needs profound change with doctrinaire improvements. Sir Robert Borden, for instance, some days ago he most amiably gave me a little private talk on these matters, of course on the tacit understanding that he was not to be interviewed as for close reporting of his informal sentences. He was, by the way apparently in robust health, as if, like Mr. Asquith, of a temperament to flourish under the heaviest responsibilities ever laid on a prime minister in his own country. No statesman could be of aspect and utterance less hurried, nor more pleasant, lucid, cautious, disposed to give a friendly caller large and accurate information briefly, while disclosing nothing at variance with or unfindable in his published speeches. Of some of them he repeated apposite slices, to others he referred for further enlightenment as to his views on imperial federation. Really he was neither secretive nor newly informative. The Premier of Canada at any time is governed, much as I have endeavored to show how the electors are, by that natural, instinctive course of the general loyal Canadian mind, which constitutes the situation and controls governmental proceedings on behalf of the public. Well-meaning persons who allege Sir Robert to have either favored or disfavored Imperial Federation have been inaccurate. Precisely what Imperial Federation maybe nobody knows, for the simple and sufficient reason that nobody has ever sketched or elaborated a scheme in that regard which appeared or appears desirable as a change from the all-compelling situation. What has never been adopted as desirable cannot be termed practicable in statesmen's language. To declare in a tried scheme impracticable might be an error of rashness. The idea of federating the empire has long attracted Sir Robert, with many other admirable Canadians and Britons, since it connotes or involves the concept of British Union for all worthy and necessary purposes, including maintenance of local autonomy or self-government. Surely a most praiseworthy design. Discussion of that idea is unlikely to be harmful, 
it may be full, something may come of it that may seem desirable and practicable to substantially all interests and people concerned, a consummation devoutly to be wished, but not to be rushed. One point, frequently specified in Sir Robert's public speeches, was stated as follows in a recent report, pamphlet for distribution by his own side, it is impossible to believe that the existing status, so far as it concerns the control of foreign policy and extra-imperial relations, can remain as it is today. All are conscious of the complexity of the problem thus presented, and no one need despair of a satisfactory solution, and no one can doubt the profound influence which the tremendous events of the past few months and of those in the immediate future must exercise upon one of the most interesting and far-reaching questions ever presented for the consideration of statesmen. There Sir Robert was recommending no particular solution. A little earlier in the same speech he illustrated the deep sense of all experienced British statesmen that there never is or can be in the British system any final solution of any grave problem, the vital essence of the system being flux and change to suit ever-changing circumstance. In so far as this empire may be said to possess a constitution, it is of modern growth and is still in the stage of development. One can hardly conceive that it will ever distinctly emerge from that state or attain a status in which constitutional development is no longer to be anticipated. Indeed, the genius of the British people and all our past history lead us to believe the contrary. The steps in advance have been usually gradual and always practical, and they have been taken on instinct rather than upon any carefully considered theory, which was admonition at once of the centralizationists and their opponents, the nationalists. Whatever alteration of existing British interarrangements may come after the war will be done on instinct in view of circumstances that cannot now be foreseen. Wherefore clamorers for this or that, their favorite scheme, are now inopportunists. Hence they are neglected by the public as an impressive, futile wasters of breath or ink. Indeed Canada, Great Britain, the whole race of mankind are now swept on the crest of a huge wave of fate. When it casts them ashore, recedes leaves men to consider what may best be done for the future. Then will have come the time to rearrange political fabrics, if need be. Then Sir Robert Borden will probably continue in his often clearly specified opinion that Canada, if remaining liable as now to be drawn into Great Britain's more perilous war is a liability which must ever urge Canada to strong participation in order that the peril may be the sooner ended ought to have a share in controlling Great Britain's foreign policy which sharing Mr. Asquith declared last year impracticable, in that sense inadmissible. Westminster must retain freedom to move, act, strike quickly. Her course toward Germany had to be decided last August within a few hours. Obviously her freedom, her power for promptitude would be hindered in proportion to need for such consultation with and approval by councillors of many distant countries as is presupposed by advocates of imperial federation. Why establish control by cumbersome? superfluous machinery when the war has made it clear as the sun at high noon that the essential desideratum, British Union, exists now. All the notable communities of the king's realms have demonstrated that they are in the mind, the condition of a voluntary empire. What more can be desired save by such as desire old country domination of all the concerned countries, and who really long for a formal and subservient empire? Sir Richard Jebb, a deep student of the empire problem declared clearly last November the meaning of that general voluntary British war union which is a wonder of mankind, and in the course to teach a profound, general political lesson, he wrote, that the war will in any event change the external relations is evident, but why, if we win, should it change the political relations between the parts, 
except to the extent of encouraging us to conserve and develop the existing system which has given so signal an example of effective imperial unity in time of need, continually talking of imperial unity, we fail to recognize it when we have got it. There is never going to be a moment when one might say, yesterday we were not united, today the grand act of imperial federation understood has been signed, henceforth we are united. The cult of the grand act is a snare and a delusion. Whatever may happen hereafter even the grand act itself posterity is likely to look back upon August, 1914, as the moment when the British Empire reached the zenith of its unity. Let us remember that the existing system is not stationary. Though its principal voluntary union may be final, it has been developing steadily since 1902. The Australian Fleet Unit, the first of the Dominion Navies, which enables each to exert upon foreign policy the full weight of its importance in the Empire, was not begun until 1910. The corollary, that any Dominion Minister appointed to reside in London should have free and constant access to the British Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, was only conceded in January, 1912 and has not yet been taken advantage of, even by Australia, but the development is all true to principle, what principle, voluntary company operation, as opposed to central compulsion, in war, as in peace, each of the Britannic nations is free to do or not to do, but we have invoked naval and military company ordination, with results which the Australian Navy has already exemplified on the end, and C, has the system of the free commonwealth, as distinguished from the German principle of a centralized empire organized primarily for war, broken down under the supreme test, as so many of our prophets predicted, on the contrary, it has alone saved South Africa to the empire, besides eliciting and restricted military aid from each part, why change it for something diametrically opposed to its spirit, substituting compulsion for liberty, provinces for nation-states, Sir Richard Jebb's sentence, Specifying the nature of the Australian influence on foreign policy, seems apt reply to Sir Robert Borden's oft-repeated specification that a share in control of foreign policy should accrue to the Dominions by reason of their participation in or liability to a war. This liability really compels them to engage with all their strength, lest they comfort an enemy by abstention, or by confining their armaments to self-defense, which might and would be read as disapproval of Britain's course. If the war were one of magnitude endangering her, a system more powerfully requiring Great Britain to take heed that her quarrel be just, lest she be not thrice armed by approving children, can scarcely be imagined. On this matter I have had the pleasure and benefit, during the last twelve years, of talking with Sir Wilfrid Laurier often. In the quoted Jeb view he agreed closely when I saw him a few days ago. He remarked, with special regard to this article for the New York Times that his point of insistence at the Imperial Conferences of 1902, 1907, 1911, and on all proper occasions, has been that local autonomy that island complete self-government for each of the Dominions is not only consistent with British unity but necessary thereto as promoting and conserving that unity. When Mr. Asquith's denial of the practicability of giving the Dominions a direct share in control of Great Britain's foreign policy is considered, the Jevlorier view would appear one to which Sir Robert Borden, cautious statesman, must be led by recognition that potent influence on foreign policy cannot but come to dominions energetically providing at once for their own defense and for their power to aid Great Britain all along the line. As to Imperial Federation, Sir Wilfrid remarked that he has ever been openly attracted by that aspiration toward permanent British Union, on which advocacy of the vague project has ever been bottomed. 
the island as he said to me, and as all his long series of political actions had manifested, British in heart and way of political thinking, as indeed substantially all his French-Canadian compatriots are, British liberality, not to say liberalism, has attached them to the British system as firmly as any community originating from the United Kingdom. It was a French-Canadian statesman who asserted, some fifty years ago, when many British Canadians seemed tending toward union with the United States, the last shot fired in Canada for British connection will be from a French-Canadian, that was before the Civil War abolished slavery, but, even as the Britishism of old country liberals is strongly tinctured by devotion to ideals which Americans are wont to regard as theirs ideals making for settled peace, industry, the uplift of the common people, fair room and reward for those abilities which conspicuously serve the general welfare so Sir Wilfred and his compatriots acknowledge their Britishism to be acutely conscious of political kinship with the American people, the French-Canadian yearning, like that of many Canadians of British origin, is rather for English-speaking union a union of at least thorough understanding and common designs with the American people than for the narrower exclusive British union sought by Canadian Imperial Federationists, Sir Wilfred said, in effect, I do not profess to report his very,